0: it's right there in the title wild isn't that wild nuns are wild (laughs) welcome
1: to keep it fictional a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers build your to be read list with sadie liz virginia fiona and corinne from the port moody public library warning this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list They say that truth is stranger than fiction. And today, your book friends at the Keep It Fictional podcast by the Port Moody Public Library have four absolutely wild stories to share with you that are the facts and nothing but the facts. So, my fellow nonfiction readers, today, this is a special day for us it's a special day for us and that we are going to share four fantastic non-fiction stories that are true but absolutely mind-blowing so I'm excited Liz how hard was it for you to hard or not hard I guess to find a book that fit this category of absolutely wild true story
2: um not terribly hard I kind of went through a run of sort of fantastical biographies so I had one ready
1: Nice. Well, I, I know you're a fellow nonfiction reader, so this probably would have been a little bit easier. So I'm going to turn my roving Sauron's eye of attention to Virginia, who
3: I'm sure this was a struggle. Sure was. Not as much of a struggle as cozy mystery, but it sure was. Yeah, like I think, I, yeah, the type of nonfiction I read like are not this type of nonfiction, so I do have to find a book. But it was a book that I remember borrowing a year ago when it came out and I never actually read it. So I was like, you know, that sounds like wild. in the subtitle, there's the word shocking in it. So, I mean, if it said it's shocking, it must be, right? So that's how I chose mine. You know, I
1: love a shocking story. Love it. This one, I did try to, I tried, you know that I love reading true crime. So I tried to stay with something that was not technically a crime and like challenge myself a little bit more to read something a little bit wilder with, oh no, I was about to say less of a body cap, but that's not true at all. Oh no. Anyways, uh, Fiona, I know that you kind of like dabble hither and thither. How hard was it for you to find something that was truly
0: wild? It was really tough. I feel like I can get into this, but I wasn't really in the mood. There was nothing on my TBR that really fit the book bill. And I actually have read Liz's book and it came to mind. I was like, oh, Liz has got it. (laughs) So I chose an interpretation that I'm very excited to defend.
1: You know how much we love to debate here. Love to debate. We do keep a uh, just a little bit of behind the scenes of Keep It Fictional. We do keep a spreadsheet of what books we're going to talk about so that we don't end up talking about the same book. And Fiona's entry for this particular session was just secret interpretation. So I have been waiting on tender hooks to learn exactly what an interpretation of a wild true story is because I would have thought that would be pretty basic, but apparently not.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. I will start with mine because I just finished it yesterday. It was an experience. It was a journey that I and uh, by proxy, my roommates also went on because I kept having to like stomp downstairs and like, let me reach this. Um, and at a certain point, they were worried about my health. So this was a wild ride. And in fact, one that we are still currently on, which actually kind of links back to Keep It Fictional. There is actually a link between this book and our podcast in that on January 6th, 2021, we were about to start a live recording of the Keep It Fictional podcast. And I just happened to be kind of browsing through, maybe it was Twitter or Facebook, and I started seeing some information coming out about what was happening in Washington, D.C. At first, there were protests of steal the vote and a lot of people gathering outside the Capitol building. And, you know, there was a, a bit of people poking fun at these protesters kind of strangely dressed, holding up signs with giant cues on them or talking about an oncoming storm. And I thought, well, that's very odd. And then they breached through the barriers And then we started getting live stream footage of them walking through the building, going into people's offices, going on the floor of the Capitol building just before we started recording. And it was shocking. Um, It was almost incomprehensible to understand what was going on because it, it just it's kind of inconceivable. Nothing has ever happened like that in in US history that wasn't wasn't an external war force of like 1812 coming to to burn down the White House, but it was an internal attack, an internal insurrection. And so I remember being really shaken before we started recording that podcast. So, when it came time to talk about a wild true story, I wanted to kind of tackle something that I truly did not understand, something that I just don't get. And so I decided to look at kind of the fundamental underpinnings of what happened in the 2021 capital state attack. And I decided to go down the rabbit hole a little bit into QAnon with the new book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything by Mike Rothschild. Um, This is a brand new book that is a really good overview of what QAnon is, as far as anyone can tell, because its uh, origins, past, present and future are really shady. And as someone who only had like a vague idea of what Q was, it was some sort of strange conservative movement that really liked Trump. I really had no idea that the reality was much, much much stranger than I thought it was. Mike Rothschild goes over its beginnings. Um, it, it that it started on 4chan, which is a, a horrible internet site, mostly the haven of neo Nazis and pornography, and it started as many of these kind of strange people pretending to construct a reality that people kind of play in. Uh, Someone posted something on October 28th that uh, Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested and it gave a time and a date, like she's gonna be arrested next week and kind of signed their name Q. And people, for whatever reason, latched onto this, even though clearly this has not happened. Or ever happened. And what kind of started spiraling is that this poster, um, identity absolutely unknown, um, continued to make what is now called drops. They are cryptic messages, kind of think like um, Nostradamus predictions like, oh, big things going to happen, power to us all, insurrection, the storm is coming, October 15th. And to an outsider, if you saw that message, it would seem like absolute gobbledygook. But if you are inside the Q movement, you believe that this individual is a high-ranking military insider, that they are part of a epic secret shadow battle that is going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And the forces of evil are Democrats. Hollywood elites, the business world, the media, the New World Order, and as Rothschild points out, rife with anti-Semitism. It's the oldest story ever told. And there are people who, for profit or because they believe it, spend their time decoding these cryptic messages and sharing the message with Their followers. And sometimes these are things about the Clintons drinking the blood of children. Sometimes it's about the network of child sex trafficking that is happening behind everyone's knowledge and various other things. And that Trump is the savior, the golden boy who is going to take out all of this. Right. So that's where we start from in this story. And then it just gets worse. Um, Rothschild is a uh, it's a very succinct understanding of what QAnon is, its impact, um, how it has perpetuated acts of violence, how it has destroyed people's lives, people's families. He does a really good job of discussing, like, is it a cult? What is it? Is it a new religion? Is it a movement? How can you help someone that is currently caught in that kind of spiral of QAnon? And what I thought was the most interesting part was how he talked about how COVID and the pandemic and isolation really amplified the QAnon message to people who wouldn't necessarily have believed or been a part of that before. I think this is a really relevant book, frighteningly relevant book, because one of the stats in the book is that in December 2020, a poll by NPR Ipsos found that about a third of Americans believe in the existence of a shadowy, deep state pulling the strings of international politics, and that it could be up to 8% of Americans that believe that the QAnon conspiracy theory is very accurate, and that 10% find it somewhat accurate. So as Rothschild said, you probably know someone who believes in this, or a part of this. And so I think it's really important to be aware of what it actually Is so, yeah. That book is The Storm Upon Us by Mike Rothschild. Oh, it's not a read that you should do in one sitting because it is a lot, it is so much, it is extremely upsetting. (laughs) It is extremely upsetting, but I think very necessary reading. I wouldn't say that it's a really, it's not a big deep dive, it's more of a surface look at it. So if you're just kind of wanting to get the bare facts of what this is all about, or if you start hearing a friend or family member who has been targeted by QAnon to start believing some of their things, um, you should read this book to just be aware of exactly what is going on. And yes, it is
3: wild.
1: All right, I move on to Virginia. Virginia, I know this is going to be a struggle for you, so let's hear it. Right,
3: right, okay, so yes, it was because I'm not a nonfiction reader, so however, however, I feel like I not only pick a wild story, like I said, because it has the word "shocking" in the title, but I feel like the choice in itself is wild. The fact that I chose this book is wild because it is a known fact, and we've talked about it very recently, that there is a book friend on this podcast where. My book planet and their book planet are like far, far apart. And that once a year, they will meet and they will say hi just once a year. And then for the rest of the year, they will have to stay as far away as possible for the good of the universe. They need to stay far apart. However, at least I think our book planets. Are in the same universe, they are staff at the Port Moody Public Library that I feel like my book planner doesn't even know that their book planner exists because they are exists in two different universes. And one of them in particular, also is named Corrine. So, When I had to find a book for this episode, I was like, okay, I remember this book that I borrowed, like I said, and I never read. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like a wild story. I'm going to go find that. And of course, went up to the shelves and long and behold, it turns out to be a staff pick by the other Corinne. So I was like, you know, I don't have a choice now. I've got to read this now and doesn't matter what it is, I have to read it. So... I have for you today, The Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in segregated self by Chip Jones. So this is an extensively researched story by a Pulitzer-nominated journalist who are trying to shed light on a name, on a person, on a story that history have not bothered to record or maybe in this case have purposely omitted. It was a Saturday afternoon in 1958 in Richmond, Virginia. William Tucker, a Black American, was working in his shoe repair shop when he got a phone call from a friend he knew that worked at the Medical College of Virginia, MCV, the largest learning hospital in the state. It's just a few blocks away from his shop. The friend called William up and said, Hey, You know, your brother Bruce is in the hospital, right? Like he's in an operation, I think. Maybe you should go find out what's going on. And then the friend hung up. William, not being able to just get up work, not being able to afford to just close up his shop for that day, decided to call the hospital to see what's going on. He called the hospital at least three times that afternoon, and no one was able to give him any straight answers about what is happening to his brother. Bruce. At about seven o'clock, he arrived at the hospital, finally able to get off work. And after waiting for quite a while, a few men came up to him and said, oh, your brother has died this afternoon. And uh, you can't see him right now, but we will send the body over to the funeral home for you. What he gathered was that his brother, Bruce, was actually admitted to the hospital on Friday, a whole day before. It seems like he got off work and then he decided to go for a drink with a few friends. They were sitting on like a wall and he fell off and he hit his head and the head injury was what killed his brother. On Monday morning, he went to the funeral home and Matt Jones was the funeral director and he was preparing the body for burial but Matt Jones told William Tucker that I was getting the body ready and uh, your brother is missing a heart and his kidneys they are not there and William Tucker was like wait but it was a head injury that killed him why would his heart and his kidneys be missing and the question will be answered in a headline story in the paper soon. It said, MCV has performed his first successful heart transplant, and he has saved a white businessman, and he is well on his way to recovery. There is no mention of the identity of the donor. Starting with a history lesson on medicine, Ship Jones takes us through the early history of the study of the human body, especially in the field of anatomy, from stories of grave robbing, how you go about procuring bodies for medical research purposes, which is something that in the 19th century, MCV is fond of doing, leading to warnings to Black kids telling them, now don't go out at night or else the night doctor is going to snatch you up. From that to the race to be the first to successfully transplant a heart into a human body. To all the experimental procedures that were done on unsuspecting patients, the use of animals in order to do tests, and the complete lack of ethics or this concept of consent and the whole idea of transplant and the whole controversial nature of transplants that a lot of people don't believe that that is kind of the thing to do. But yet there are a group of doctors who are just dying to try to try to make this happen. And all the things that was done in the name of medical progress. And all of this against the backdrop of Richmond, Virginia, during the 50s and the 60s, during the civil rights movement, the mandate for integration in schools, in hospitals, and the opposition to these long-standing traditions of segregation. And all of this leads to the tragedy of Bruce Tucker, who arrived at the hospital at the absolute wrong time for him and his family. But according to the two surgeons who are eager to perform the first transplant, the absolute right time, this healthy heart that is just landed in the lab that they cannot wait to put in another human body. We were then taken through the trial, the lawsuit, William Tucker being represented by Douglas Wilder, who is the future first Black American to be the governor in Virginia, and how through the trial, they debated the concept of death. When do we consider a person to be dead? And how we looked at the, the doctors that performed the surgery, did they harvested his organ? Not just without, for sure, without the consent of family, but did they even try, did they try hard enough to find the family of Bruce Tucker? And when, when did they actually take the heart out? Is it Legally, should Bruce Tucker legally be considered dead at that point? Douglas Wilder, the attorney, trying to bring to the light that there is a business card of William Tucker in Bruce Tucker's possessions. That they could have just looked and realized that his brother worked a few blocks away from the hospital. But they didn't even bother to try because to them, when Bruce Tucker arrived at the hospital, because of his skin color, he was already considered a charity patient. Someone, because of the smell of alcohol on their breath, that they realized, yeah, this one is not really linked to anybody. It is just someone who's not going to be able to afford any procedures. They are somebody that, you know, the hospital is going to suck up all the costs to pay for this person. They have already written him off. It is one of those stories, I think, that, again, not just illuminate the whole story of race and and the kind of discrimination that's built into the medical system, but also like a really good look at what should be done in the name of progress, in the name of medical progress. In all of this, Chip Jones let us know that there was no remorse shown from any of the doctors. All they are saying that and all they are asserting is that they have done nothing wrong and that Bruce Tucker's name is left out of this important history of organ transplants and that how this is the 16th 16, the 16 case of a successful organ transplant, but his name is completely left out of it and is forgotten. So I think if anyone is has read The Immortal um, Life of Henrietta Lacks, um, if anyone is interested in sort of medical history and some of the very unknown stories that have that has not been told, um, I think this will be of interest to you. So again, this is The Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first head transplant in the segregated self by Chip Jones.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Virginia. All right.
2: Let's go over to Liz. Okay, Liz, with the book that I apparently stole from Fiona, led me to think of another book that I read this year that actually would have been really good for this episode. So, sorry, Fiona. Anyways, this one that I have here for you today is by a Canadian author. She uh, also is a journalist by trade and her name is Pauline Dakin, and the book in question is a memoir, a biography. It is called Run, Hide, Repeat, a Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood. All right, so as you can surmise from the title, it is about her childhood on the run, and this story involves primarily herself, her mother, and her brother. They had since split from her father, Uh, And he had since assumed a new life. However, Pauline's life became even more tumultuous than a, a divorced family. Twice, her mother had made her and her brother pull a disappearing act. So going to school one day, socializing with friends, and then the next, Pauline was gone. No goodbyes, you know, leaving no trace behind. Of where they had lived, who they had interacted with. And in fact, by age 11, Pauline had attended six schools in seven years. Now, it wasn't until the age of 23, so literally an entire childhood of living a very disjointed family life, that her mother revealed that they, as a family, were on the run from the mafia. And not only that, but their family was still alive today because they were receiving protection from a covert anti-crime task force. However, there was no need to go to the RCMP about this because that's how covert this anti-crime task force was. It was separate from the RCMP and also separate from CSIS, which to my knowledge is like the equivalent of the CIA in Canada. So this was how underground, this was how covert this group was. This was how much danger that Pauline and her family were in. So at age 23, we come to a scene with Pauline and she is sitting outside of a motel in a car with her mother and her mother instructs her not to speak. She places her fingers over her lips in the universal sign to be quiet. She hands her a note, she hands her an envelope, and it gives her instructions on what to do with that envelope. So at age 23, Pauline, despite having started to work and live on her own, is still swept up in this world of mystery and secrecy and hiding and fear and anxiety. Not only is it a world of motels and brief encounters, speaking in cars, passing handwritten notes to each other, It's sweeping rooms for bugs or microphones when they enter. There's an involvement of a united minister who claims to have ties to the mafia, at least as being an ear, a counsel to them. And this is how he knows that they are in danger from this group. And somehow that minister ingratiates himself into their family to provide protection, to provide counsel, to provide solace. He seems to be the only one they can trust. is he? After a lifetime, a literal lifetime of looking over her shoulder and having unanswered questions, of having relationships, friendships ripped apart, Pauline begins to look past her fear and look for answers. Why was this happening to her family? Why would they target a mother and her two children? The more Pauline digs, uh, the more secrets that she finds buried. And the more she looks back on a very confusing past that doesn't always add up. So, I won't tell you what exactly she found out about her family, about why they were on the run for the mafia, or were they on the run from the mafia? What exactly was her mother causing them to run from? This was an engaging read. Dakin really put her journalistic skills to use, fast paced, as you would expect from a story where. Children are ripped in the night from their homes to run away from this invisible threat. So if you're interested in biography, in memoirs, if you are interested in people seeking and finding the truth, if you're interested in a good old Canadian story, then you may want to check out Run, Hide, Repeat by Pauline Dagan. So tantalizing.
1: Was it the mafia? No, it's not the mafia. It's never the mafia. Liz will never tell. I can't for my own good. <laughs> for your own protection. Got it. I understand. I understand. All right. Last but not least, I am very excited for a creative interpretation of a wild true story from Fiona.
0: All right. I'm excited. I don't think I'm pushing it too far. This is a book that is right up my alley. So many things about it. It is a uh, comic It is a true story, it has multiple stories in it, and it's historical. And what truth, I ask you, is more wild than the Wild West? (laughs) Black Heroes of the Wild West by James Otis Smith is an excellent comic about Stagecoach Mary, Bass Reeves, and Bob Lemons. They are short vignettes, which is my favorite type of comic, uh, recapturing these stories of Black historical figures who have been forgotten from history. Another wild thing about this is, I think, how Black people have often been written out of the North American narrative about the Wild West. It is a convenient retelling for white supremacy. And I really, really appreciated this opportunity to uh, view the Wild West through a different lens. Some of these stories are actually like pretty cool and pretty wild. Stagecoach Mary was a woman who was born into enslavement and... She was born into enslavement, and then uh, after emancipation, um, she basically just lived a like just a very varied what a life of entrepreneurship and great friendships. At one point, she lives in a convent, so that was exciting for me. And her best friend is a nun, um, <laughs> and she was an absolutely amazing figure. Just living a very rugged uh, life in the Wild West, um, but also very community-based and completely giving the finger to gender roles. So at one point she opens a restaurant and she's Known for her generosity around town, uh, you know she picks up the tab if she sees that someone's having a hard time. Then she opens her stagecoach coach business, in which she does deliveries and uh, whatever the weather. If she has to go out on snowshoes, she makes sure that that delivery is done. She's also a cigar smoking, gambling woman who is given the respect of a white man uh, when she goes to the taverns uh, and she's not afraid to throw a punch. So a very, very cool woman that I was super excited to learn about. Base Reeves is a bounty hunter and Bob Lemons is a, um, like a, not a cattle driver, but someone who breeds and looks after horses and kind of like, does his own Wild West thing. And there's a little discussion in the back about uh, whether or not the Lone Ranger is actually based on base reefs. Uh, Another thing that I love, this book has excellent, an excellent intro and end notes contextualizing everything. Um, It also talks a lot about indigenous people in the Wild West and the relationship between Black people and indigenous people. So again, really rewriting that history in in a way that it has often been ignored and lost, plus done in a comic book format. So pretty much uh, my dream. If you enjoy Wild with maybe a little less anguish, uh, I highly recommend Black Heroes of the Wild West by James Otis Spet.
1: Nicely done, Fiona. Nicely done. We were just giggling at you were just trying to make your case by saying the word wild over and over again. <laughs> we're like, I wonder if there's going to be a nun in this one. And there was. <laughs> and there was. Liz called it. Liz called it.
0: And it's right there in the title. Wild. Isn't that wild? Nuns are wild.
1: <laughs> I don't know if that's the adjective that I would personally choose, but um. <laughs> Well I mean you made a case, Fiona, you made a case and and you made it work for your particular uh, proclivities. So well done. Well done to all of our readers and we we encourage all of you, whether you are like hardcore fiction people or like a memoirist to like take a chance on a nonfiction. Take a chance. Inside you will find engaging narratives and stories. you will find fascinating, unforgettable characters. You will learn something about the past that you hadn't known, but should known. Um, There'll be twists. There'll be turns. There'll be mafia. You never know what will happen, but uh, yeah, we encourage all of you, all of you, just take a chance on a nonfiction. Take a chance in the wilderness. Good reading, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional!